Holly Cotton here, and I am so excited about our guest today. I have been trying to get this busy bee on the show for quite some time. If you follow the Tiki Factor, if you follow everything about Tiki Factor, you will know Tiki Davis and his storytelling, how he's out here inspiring and changing the world. So I finally got him to come on Beyond the Fit. So Thank you so much, Tiki, for being here today. Thanks for having me, Holly. Thanks for having me. And I'm not that busy. I'm trying to get busy by being on this show. Maybe somebody will look me up and uh, book me. I love it. I love it. I love it. So first of all, if you guys do not follow Tiki on social media, let me just put some respect on his name and let you guys know all the things that he's doing. First of all, he sent me his bio. It was like 13 pages long. So I had to make a little <laughs> snippet of it uh, and just kind of talk about what he's doing right now. And he'll kind of give us some insight on his story, how he got to this point. So this is just for like the most re recent stuff from his bio. So Tiki is an award-winning entrepreneur, a motivational speaker, storyteller. He talks about his story of triumph. He tells about, you know, how he, his upbringing and how he basically redefined his life, what he wanted to do, took lemons and made lemonade, all of that great stuff on his platforms. It's a very inspiring story. He's been featured on Texas Country Reporter, uh, 700 Club. He recently signed, which is his biggest thing. I'm super uh -huh. excited. Can't wait for this. He has a book publishing contract with HarperCollins. And he also is working with Viola Davis, her husband, and on and on and on and on and on. So <laughs> that's that's just like the most immediate Tiki Factor stuff going on right, right. now. So... First, let's just get some background because I know whenever you're talking, the first thing you always talk about is Tiki. Right. So, or the Tiki factor, excuse me, and how you made that into an acronym right. for success. Right. So can you just give us some insight into what the Tiki factor is? Well, okay. Well, the Tiki factor is my name, right? And so my name is spelled T-I-K-I. So when I got into the public speaking space, I just always thought I had a great story. So my mentors and my teachers said, Tiki, no one cares how great your story is until they can see themselves in the story. So you can get on stage and make everybody cry and give them a good story, but they want to leave with something. So that's when we came up with the Tiki factor, because you got to give the people principles to apply to their life. So my name is spelled T-I-K-I. So... When I share my story, everything I've overcome, good or bad, how was I able to do it? So you got to identify with the, the the bullet points with the audience. So the T stands for total commitment. I had to make a total commitment to my life. The next acronym is I. I had to learn to live from my imagination and not my history because none of us are our history. And then the K Kindred spirits, the people around you affect you, depending on who they are and what they do is going to affect you in that type of way. And the last I is invest in yourself. So good or bad, anything that I accomplish, washing cars or doing different things, first I have to invest in myself for somebody to believe in me to give me an opportunity. So it didn't matter if I was taking a $7 an hour job washing cars or I was a freshman in college. It started with me taking the first step, investing in myself, and that's when the help comes. So T, total commitment, 
I imagination and K kinder spirits and the last I invest in yourself. So those are the principles that I end all my talks with so people can apply to their life for success. Okay. I, and I love that. I, I love that one, you talk about how you were mentored and how you learn these things along the way, because I think a lot of times when you hear people talk about success, it becomes a me, me, mm -hmm. me. And I'm doing this. I'm here. I paved the way I did this. And a lot of times people don't talk about the struggle, some of the mistakes that they made to get there, mm -hmm. how they had to get mentored and input from other people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that that mentorship is basically reevaluating what you're doing. And someone is like, wait a minute, this is a hot mess. Right. <laughs> let's go this way or let's try that. So I love that you did um, mention that about having a mentor. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do is piggyback off of the Tiki factor. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about you and your life experience, because I know you have a story mm -hmm. about your childhood and whenever we're talking about our passions and our purposes, they usually are inspired from a painful experience or something that we had to overcome. So I know that you implemented the Tiki factor into your own life. So can you give us an insight into, I know we, we're going to get some free stories from you because usually huh. people are paying to, <laughs> to hear you talk about this story of triumph. Right. So y'all, he's giving it to us for free, mm -hmm. but can you give us your story about your triumph and, and your struggles growing up as a child? Yeah. Well, so I tell everybody, no one would care about my story unless I won at the end. So the reason people care about my story is not much different than anybody else's story, but the silver lining in my story is because I'm successful now. So before I came successful, nobody really wanted to hear the Tiki Davis story. So I always kept that in mind. And when I really got into the world of motivation, like I spoke with you earlier about, I didn't know you can actually do this for a living and get paid to do it. So when I hired a mentor, a coach, and I saw these guys making money doing it, and I felt like I'm a very competitive guy by nature, an ex-football player, I said, if they can get paid, so can I. So I realized it was a business aspect, but I needed to get the coaching and the training to develop my story. So what it's called is you have a keynote, and it's called the Martin Luther King speech. That's your go-to speech that you share what you're known for. So my story, what I share is early on in my childhood, I had one dream. And the first dream that I can identify with was wanting to become a football player. And the only person that I could ask for to help me with my dream as a seven-year-old boy in the projects was my mother. And I went to her one day and I said, Mom, if it ain't too much to ask for Christmas, can you get me a football? And my mom had this look on her face that she couldn't fulfill that request because she was dealing with her own demons and she was only 27 years old. But for some reason, she said, yeah, I can get you a football for Christmas. And when Christmas came in that apartment complex that we call home in the back room, it was two presents wrapped in newspaper up under the Christmas tree. And the football was for me. So my mom really helped me, true story, with my first dream, put the ball in my hand. And I'm, I'm from a city known for football and oil. But every black kid that I knew, we all wanted to be a football player. And that was my dream, too. So back in the early 80s, my mom had robbed this man for his money. And it was New Year's Eve. I'm at home alone. 
I leave the door unlocked for my brother and my mother to come home. As you know, everybody just has one key to the house and you rotate that key. So I had the key that night. I leave the door unlocked for my brother and my mother to come home. But this particular even, my mom had robbed this man. Instead of my mom or my brother coming home because the door was unlocked, this gentleman comes upstairs in our project in my bedroom where I'm getting ready to go to sleep. And instead of killing my mom, he attempts to kill me by putting a bandana around my neck, putting a pillow over my face, punching me several times, then stabbing me in the neck with a screwdriver, right? Second grade. And leave me for dead. But I fight and I get up under the bed. The man panics. He runs away. I get up. I go next door where my brother's playing Nintendo. I'm fighting for my life. And I didn't know at that time I was fighting for my life. And when I'm on stage, I say I'm fighting for my dream because I want people to connect with it. And I go next door and... You know, in the, in the hood, the stories are always worse than they actually are. So when they made it back to my mom hanging out in the projects at this place called The Flats, it was like a Harlem, New York type place that her ways finally caught up with her and her son has been murdered. So when my mom shows up in the scene, she's already thinking I'm dead. So I'm on the stretcher. They just haven't put the white uh, sheet over my whole body, just over my head, but I'm bleeding. And my mom runs up to the stretcher. And the first thing she says is when she realized I was alive, she didn't say, baby, are you okay? She said, don't tell him nothing. She says, don't tell him nothing because she knew I was a smart kid because she thought that I was going to fight and survive. And I do. And my mom don't come to the hospital for several days later because she figured I was going to break and talk when she knew I was going to survive. So a detective named Fred Price which I'll bring him into the story later. He comes in there and he's uh, asking me, Tiki, who's this man that stabbed you? Who broke into your house and do all this? So I lied to him and said they broke in the house to rob us. And the officer knew I was lying because nobody really breaks into the project, right? So that's how the first part of my adolescence started in drama and stabbed in the neck and stuff like that. So that's how it started. And then you want me to keep on going or do you got something to jet? Well, I was going to interject on that. Okay. So I was going to say, and so I, I really, so I always tell a story about, uh, my sister died when I was five mm -hmm. and I still can be, I still can be, if I close my eyes, I can still be in that car with my other sister at the bridge where my sister got killed and like reenacted in my head, even though I was five, right. it's like, cause it was a traumatic experience so even now i don't remember like what i had on or whatever but i can still remember those feelings right. so um, i'm just wondering you now as a you know as an adult mm -hmm. do you still feel connected to that story like do you yes, still uh, ever think about really now i'm starting to connect with it more because i'm sharing it almost weekly and, and going through it at that time, or even growing up, I never really thought about it that much. But when you're on stage, sometimes people believe you're not. Then you have kids or uh, adults asking, hey, do you have the scar? And I'm like, yeah, I do. So I, I show them right here is where I actually got stabbed. You can see the mark. And, I, you know, and then it starts taking you there because, you know, you're reliving it in that moment. And now that, that I have a daughter... And so I would think about, man, what if that happened to her? So now I'm putting myself in those shoes. But at the time, I didn't really know my life was in danger. I didn't know how much trouble we were in. So at the time, going through the traumatic or the trauma back then, we didn't know what it was called. 
So now we could have had mental health issues, but that was the norm. I wasn't the only person, young kid that got attacked. Sometimes I, I tell people in my story, I consider myself lucky because I didn't die that day or I didn't spend the rest of my life in prison. So I have an opportunity so I can't walk around with a bitter heart or upset with my mom or my parents or the system. Because when I got old enough to make the right decisions, people ask me, Tiki, how did you make it? I tell them I'm perfect on paper. Like my resume on paper is perfect. So since I got in that trouble when I was 17, I have zero blemishes for 28 years. I, it's perfect on paper. As a man, I'm flawed. I sin every day. But on paper, my resume is flawless. So you want me to continue with the story or you want to harp there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now finish the okay. story. I was just curious if, you know, yeah. like, cause you know, whenever you're, you have these traumatic memories, like how, how does it affect you as an adult? And that's what I was wondering. Like, whenever you have this, does it make you depressed? Does it get, you know, do you have mental health things? Do you have a phobia? Do you have like, how did it affect you going through that so young? So yes, yeah, yeah. So answer no, that question. So, yeah, okay, so no, not, get to the good yeah, part. Not that part. That doesn't affect <laughs> me. So I survived that incident, 12 years old, living with mom, uh, selling candy door to door, making a dollar each box of candy that I sell. I'm going to school with this big wad of money because I can't leave my money at home with my mom that shows up three days out of the seven days, four days I'm living alone. So one time I was saving up for school clothes and my mom found my $380, right? And she takes all my money and parties with her friends and I come home, they're having a barbecue drinking beer and I knew she didn't have money. And I said, mom, how did you get all this money? And I go straight to my stash and boom, all my money was gone. And I go around the corner and this is the first time I cussed at my mom twice. So maybe this is one time and I just said, why did you effing steal my money? And she said, I didn't. So I listened around, I left around the corner and I stood behind the wall and she was telling her friend, she says, I would have gave him the hundred dollars I have left, but I'm his mom and he don't talk to me that way. So I was so hurt that my mom would take all my money, even though she wasn't taking care of me financially, I had to do it myself. So from that day on, I had taken care of myself from that day to this day. And I just started carrying all my money to school with me at 12 years old. So I had a big wad of money at, at school. So kids at school found out I was selling candy, but the candy turned into drugs because when he made it to the principal say Tiki selling candy, and they thought I was using that as a cold word for drugs. And turns out I was really selling candy because I was on juvenile probation for breaking into a elementary school still in violins and carving tools. But the reason I broke into the school and got stuck on probation as a, a juvenile wasn't because I was a thief, it's because I was hungry. Me and my friends broke into this elementary school because you remember when we were kids, you get the pizza coupons. If you read a lot of books, they'll give you where you can go to Pizza Hut and get the personal pan pizza. Our whole scheme was to break into the school to get the coupon book so we can go get a personal pan pizza every day after school. So how we got caught every day, we would go to Pizza Hut, we would fill it out and they knew we wasn't filling it out. And they says, man, y'all not that smart. Y'all not reading all these books. Like, yeah, we are, but we were doing it because we wanted to eat the pizza. And so that's how I got stuck on juvenile probation. And then when I was going to school with all this money, uh, the principal called my probation officer. He comes after school one day, guy named Gary Speed says, Tiki, Tiki D, that's what he would call me. He says, uh, I hear you selling candy after school. He said, who's your pusher? I said, he's a guy named Eddie. He's like, when does he pick you up? I said, he picks me up every day after school at 4.30. 
So the police, my probation, if they ambush this van and this guy, Eddie, and they open up his van, they think they're going to find drugs and they just find boxes of candy that we sell. So my probation officer and the cops, they were like, well, you told me you were selling candy. I said, I did, not drugs. And so he says, Tiki, what are you doing with all this money, son? I said, well, Eddie, me, he said, well, I said, well, Gary, if you don't know it or not, I said, it's five days or seven days in a week. I said, four or five of those days, I live alone. So I need this money to take care of myself. I go to 7-Eleven, I get big gulps, I get cheese fries, you know, burritos. I, I take care of myself. I buy my clothes. He says, Tiki, you're too young. You're 12 years old. You can't live like this. And he says, I'm going to do something for you. So what he did, I got stuck into Buckner Group Home for Boys. And so at 12, 13 years old, that was the first time in my life I ever had structure that I knew I was going to go to the same place every day, every night. And I started to do better in school, started doing better in sports. And that's when I really started having the love for football. So uh, at that, go ahead. So for, I just wanted to interject too. I think that's so funny that you said mm -hmm. <laughs> they thought it was a cold word for <laughs> They thought they were going to do a drug yes. bus. <laughs> No, they were mad as yeah, hell they, they, they were. when they opened up them van. They're like, where's the drug? You told me <laughs> like, you were selling candy. I said, yeah, I said I was selling candy, but it wasn't drugs. So, you know, it's stereotypical. And, you know, black kid, you know, I always would fly. I was having the Jordan tennis shoes, the Jabot pants, the Z Cavarici, the, the Union Bay, the guest jeans, all this stuff. But I was buying it myself. So these, these rich white kids that was at the school, parents were buying this. And they're like, man, Tiki, how you getting this? And I'm like, man, I'm buying this, you know? You know, I had the Avirex Nike tennis shoes with the X, but I was buying this, the Air Max. But I wanted those things, but I had to get it for myself. So I earned at a, learned at an early age, you got to work for what you want. But I love that. I love that. And uh, thank you for bringing me down memory lane because, baby, don't tell me nothing about no Z Cavaricis because I had me. <laughs> yeah. So... That that was my, you know, I've always yeah. been an entrepreneur. And before people start using it every day, entrepreneur, I don't know nobody that can out hustle me. I never met a guy to out hustle me. Like, you know, everybody's social media, everybody's influence, everybody mindset coach. I only been on social media for five years. You know, so um, I see these guys out here doing it and I'm like, okay, that's nice. They're sweet. But, you know, I was kind of performing like uh, smoke signals. You know, like back in the day when people still mailing out letters versus text messages. And so I went the hard way around and still became one of the best in the world. And so I stayed in the boys home from 12 to 15. The boys home is starting to shut down and I started excelling in this city known for football and oil, which is Odessa, Texas. And the people that don't know where Odessa is, it's in between El Paso, Texas and Dallas, Texas. Odessa's right in the middle. So for the people that don't know where it's at, and we're known for oil, but more importantly, worldwide, we're known for the movie Friday Night Lights. Okay. And so I was one of the guys that played on the team, not the Permian School, but the Odessa High School that they don't talk about in the movie, but I came 10 years after the movie. So I was one of those guys that dreams and hopes were going to be a football star, go on to a big college and more importantly, go to the NFL. Right. And so my dream was so big. My dream, I used to tell everybody, I'm going to go take Emmitt Smith's jobs for the Cowboys. That's how I used to dream in high school. I thought I was that good to go beat the all-time leading rusher out. You know, and I met Emmitt some years ago, and I was like, man, I'm a little bit bigger than him. I probably could have did it. But, you know, Emmitt's the best, and uh, respect to Emmitt. 
But that was my dream. I always thought real big. But at the age of 17, or right before that, the boys' home was going to close. So the director of the boys' home said he ain't never had a kid quite like me that he had seen a change from 12 years old to 15 years old that made a change. And he would hate me go back to the streets and live with my mom. They would lose me. So he said, let me do some checking. So before I was going to move to Lubbock, Texas, or go back with my mom, I wanted this dream of this high school football. So he had a stepbrother. I mean, he had a twin brother that had an extra room in his house. He talked to him, and they made an agreement for me to get adopted by his brother to move into their house, which it was a white family. So at the age of 15, I move in with this white family and the gentleman, uh, my stepparents, uh, named Sam and Joyce Watts. And this is not a blindside story. They said we heard this before. It wasn't one of those. My my stepparents was not rich. My stepmother worked at Town and Country. Town and Country is a convenience store like a 7-Eleven. My stepfather was a used car salesman. So together they probably made $65,000, $70,000. And they had three other kids living in the house at the same time that they brought me in. So when I came in, they tried to love me and nurture me just like they did their other kids. But you got to understand, at 15 years old, this is the first time I ever had my own room. Okay, so I didn't want to ask this good family for anything else. I said, man, you giving me a room, a bed, you know, that's all I need. So, but the man, he wasn't used to a kid being so independent. I had a job at Foot Locker at this time. So now I'm getting 30% off on my shoes. I'm still hustling. I'm getting clothes, working at the YMCA. I'm still a hustler, but he would have be offended because I would never take nothing for him. So one day we had to come to a happy medium because I'm in high school. He would put $8 on the cabinet every uh, every morning, I would never touch it. And he came and he said, Tiki, I want to do for you what I do for my other kids, son. I see you as my son. And so I had to learn to accept love. I had to learn to accept. This is something I ain't never seen before. And eventually we had a happy meeting. I take what he give me and, you know, they're still alive and they're my parents. So we'll fast forward. So I live with them. Now I'm starting to excel. I go to the high school I want to. Uh, I do good my 10th grade year. I'm going into my junior year. I'm splitting time with the star running back. My, my senior year is going to be my shot. So the summer of my junior year going into my senior year, I'm 17 years old. I get accused of a crime. I get arrested. I didn't do it. Wipe away my football career. So my senior year of high school, I spent six months in the county jail. Never playing high school football ever. And that whole dream that I wanted was wiped away at 17. So my whole life changed. I ended up going to court. I took a plea bargain. I got stuck on 10 years probation. It was explained to me if I did the 10 years probation without incident at 27, my life and I can move on without incident and like it never happened. When 27 came, the laws changed. They screwed me around, uh, put me on the registry made me look like a bad guy. So I graduate college. I got a master's degree. Well, no, uh, they make me look bad. So I do six months in jail. I get out of jail when I'm 18 years old. Nobody wanted to touch me. The colleges don't want me. The teachers knew it was some foul play. So they used to come to the jail and make sure I graduate high school. I used to have school in the jail my senior year. And so I graduate. But nobody knew the class of 97 didn't know that I didn't walk the stage because God must have been on my side because the whole graduation got rained out. 
So probably the first 10 people walked the stage. So the next day when the newspaper came out, my name was in the paper with all the other graduates. So I do my six months. I get out. I start work washing cars at a local dealership. College is out of the radar. I'm 18. I do that for two years. The owner of the dealership realized that I'm working for him. He called me to his office one day, but I ignore it because I think he's going to fire me because he's probably thinking I'm a bad guy. I heard what I went to jail for and started judging me. But it was the complete opposite. The guy pulled me in and he says, Tiki, I want to invest in you. And that's like I share on stage most of the time. I said, this was my first experience with my earth angel that I could recognize. And he says, Tiki, I want to send you to college. Any college you want to go to in the United States, if you get in, I'm going to foot the bill. So that's the first time a person other than my step parents that wasn't the same color as me really invested in my future. And I tell a lot of these young guys, the pro players, I said, I was really playing this guy. And when he was trying to help me and they said, what do you mean you was playing and he's trying to help you? He was trying to give me a college education, but he didn't understand. I understand that you want to pay for four years of education for me, but I'm going to go play too. And I'm going to the NFL. So when I went to college, I never had the dream to ever finish with a degree. But when I got there, when I got to the university, I first season, I do pretty good. Uh, I get voted freshman of the year on our team and I'm doing good. So the next, I start my first 10 college football games. It's at a small university. And I say, well, the next year I can put up a lot of yards and go to the pros. But the new head coach came in and found out what I was on probation for. Then he played judge and jury again. So he put me on the bench. And I couldn't accept being on the bench when I knew I should have played, but he never told me why. So at that time, I'm 21 years old and I don't really understand. So that's the first time in my life I quit something because I knew it was unfair. And so I tell kids, I said, at the age of 22, 23, I put down the football and I picked up the books because I realized I just didn't want to be a player on the field of athletics. I want to be a player in life. The only reason I'm on her on your show today is not what I did on some football field, Holly, is what I did in life. I'm a player now. And so people want to know, how did I do it? So from that time to this time, I educated myself. I stay in school. I graduate in four years with my bachelor's degree. I go back in front of that judge that put me on probation when I was 17. I graduate when I'm 23 with my bachelor's degree. I say, judge, can you let me off probation? He says, no. So the system forced me to stay in school to work on my master's degree. But in the midst of me working on my undergrad degree before I graduated with my bachelor's degree, the mama that put the ball in my hand at nine years old or seven years old, she's in prison for murder. And the last time that me and mom had a conversation, I was 17, she was 37. So the powers that be, when I was serving my six month, my mom was getting ready to be shipped off, catch the chain to prison. So the sheriff let me and her have an in-house son, mother visit in jail. And that was the last time I seen her. So when I'm 23, getting ready to graduate college, we would write letters and I would send her money. So the semester before I graduate, I get a phone call from the prison. On the other end, it's my mother. And when I answered, I said, hello. And she calls me Kevin, which is my brother. And I said, no, mom, it's me, Tiki. She says, oh, baby, you sound so good. You so mature because we wrote letters, but she ain't heard my voice. I said, I'm a man now, mama. Mm -hmm. 
And she says, I can tell. I said, well, mom, I got some good news and some bad news. I said, I didn't want to write it in the letter. I'm glad you called. And she says, well, give it to me. I said, well, the bad news is, mom, I'm not going to the NFL. I'm not going to be able to buy you that house. She says, well, son, that's not so bad. Well, well, what's the good news? I said, well, the good news is, mom, I'm going to be the first person in our family to graduate college. She says, that's good, son, and I'm happy for you. So now I'm excited because my mother has accepted my new why, right? Then she says, okay, boy. She says, I got some good news, too. And I said, what is it, mama? She says, I'm going to be there. I just made parole. And she says, I got two instructions for you, son. Listen, she says, I need you to send me $40. I said, yes, ma'am. I said, she said, I said, what for? She said, the first 20 is for me to buy me some tennis shoes because I'm working in the kitchens and the shoes that I'm wearing, I can't bend over and tie my shoes. My feet are so swollen. She says, I need you to send me some tennis, some money so I can buy me some tennis shoes with the Velcro snaps because I can't tie my shoes anymore. I said, what's wrong with you, mom? She said, I'm sick, but I'm explaining to you when I get out. And she says, the next thing is I need you to send me another $20 to get a copy of my medical report. So when I get out, I can get some help. And she said, lastly, son, before I let you go, expect the call from the warden so she can let you know everything that is going on with my release and where I deliver my profit. I said, yes, ma'am. And I love you. And she hung up. Just like mom said, December 31st, 2001, I met my step parents house in Odessa during that Christmas break. The last semester before I graduate, the phone rings. It's the warden on the other line. She says, Tiki Davis. I said, yes. She said, this is warden such and such. I just want to let you know that Karen has expired. I said, yes, warden. I understand her time has expired. She's getting out in six days. And she says, son, you don't understand. What do you want to do about burial arrangements? So on the day that my mother was supposed to be released from prison, I was in Huntsville, Texas, having a funeral. So that day my mom was set free. So that's the first time that I ever felt pain uh, because the woman that gave you birth, and most people think their mom or their parents are invincible, really mamas, single mothers. And so when I seen my mom died when I was 24 years old, that's the first time I thought I could die. And so. That's so, that's such a terrible story, Tiki. I'm going to need to, we're going to have to change to something yeah, happy. Yeah, so, so. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll find something happy, but you want to hear that story. So, 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 you know, I have to, I know, I know. Okay. 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 Who lower. Okay. So we need to, okay. So before, before we finished about the next, okay. the next chapter after that, I wanted to ask you, so I know you said that you had certain goals mm -hmm. and those were, like you said, I want to play mm -hmm. in the NFL. I want, you know, I have a book about goals right. day one. So I'm all about <laughs> How do you define mm -hmm. your goals? So at what point did you, did you figure out because you've accomplished so many mm -hmm. things. So at what point did you start being intentional about everything you're doing? Cause I'll tell you, like listening to your story is kind of like my story. When people ask me about, you know, well, how'd you get from that point to this point? And I'm always like, well, Honestly, I've only been intentional maybe the last five years, six years, something like that. I always like if I say I want to do mm -hmm. something, I'm going to do it like I'm determined. Right. 
I'm a hustler. I'm gonna get it done. I'm not giving up, you know, but I wasn't intentional. Like I wasn't, this is where I want to be here. This is how I want to do this. So how did you start figuring out as far as telling this story? How did you start putting those things into place or defining those goals that this, what you're doing today as Tiki Factor, Mm -hmm. Tiki Davis, is what you wanted to be paving the way for? Right. So to be honest with you, to be intentional started when I was 17 years old. Because when I got in trouble with the law, my main thing was intentional. My first goal that I wanted to do was to clear my name. And as we sit here today, I've done that. So I was exonerated for the calm that I was accused of. So that was, I was intentional. But I see so many young boys going through the system that don't get an opportunity. So I wanted to be that voice. And secondly, more importantly than that, I had a daughter. And I didn't want anybody to tell her about her daddy. So I said, I want to get in front of this. If I get my name clear or not, I need to be able to tell my side of the story and not be silent. So a lot of times I I quote Shakespeare from the stage, but I paraphrase it in the Tiki Factor form. I says, he who steals my money steals trash, but he who steals my good name steals my fortune. So I realized I was intentional about my good name because a good name can get you in doors that money can't. And so once I took care of that good name, like I told you a while ago, I'm perfect on paper. So I've been perfect on paper for 28 years of my life. And next, the end of the month, I'll be 45 years old. So I'm intentional about what I'm doing. So I felt like I couldn't go out and motivate corporations, high school, college pros, if I wasn't and intentional and successful. How can you tell me anything when you're one dimensional? So I always made sure what separates Tiki from the other guys is that I'm not one dimensional and everything that I said and do is not, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not puffed up, you know? And so the main thing was my intentional goal was to clear my name and everything that I did. I want to work hard to put up a resume Whoever I had to go in front of, it made it hard for them to say no. So I was intentional about opportunities. So I was studying to get my degree. I was studying the motivational business. So I didn't get ready. I stayed ready. So when when, when I started writing my book, let me just tell all the people that's listening out there, oh, I want to write a book. But if you want a major book deal or you want some credible source, I started writing my book when I was 25 years old. I felt like I had lived a life to have enough when I was 25 years old. I didn't get the book deal till I was 44 years old. And I had to pay writers. We had to, you know, but the story was still being written. You know what I'm saying? So I end my book in 2018. I don't even bring it up till now because I already got a whole nother book coming. But the book that my memoir, it stopped when I was in 2018, when I finally got my name back. And I just stopped it there because, you know, writing a book, talking about cancer, talking about survival, talking about things that hurt you. People that really write a book and dive deep, that's the emotional roller coaster. That's when I start having those emotional about my past and the traumas and being stabbed. Because when you're going through it, you don't think about it. But now when you're on the other side and you're older and you think like, oh, how did I survive that? And so that's when it gets me. So now even we're editing the book and we're going through it. I need other people to read it and do it for me because I can't do it no more. 
I'm like, man, okay, it's good. I already know that story. I, I don't, I, you know, I can't deal there. I can't live no more because people always ask me like, Tiki, how did you feel? This is the only way I can tell you how I felt in the moment in my life when I kind of broke, when I was trying to fight to get my name 23 years and getting told no. Have you ever seen the movie, The, the Hurricane with Denzel Washington? So if you, you've seen it or not, so watch that movie. It's a scene where Denzel Washington pl plays this prize fighter named Reuben Hurricane Carter. And he writes a book about his life story. And the book gets published and this kid that don't know how to read well buys it at a book, thrifty bookstore for 25 cents. And he starts reading about Reuben Hurricane's story that this is an innocent man in prison. And he reads it. And so he's living with some white Canadian people. So he decides to write Reuben Carter a letter and Reuben's starting to read these letters. But this guy, Carl, Reuben Carter, he's so tough because he's an innocent man and he's in prison. So he he's not going to act like a criminal. So I, I, I live my whole life this. You can call me anything, but I'm not going to be a criminal. I'm not going to be what you call me. Just like in the days when black people got called bad names, you can call me what, but I'm not going to answer to that. So that's kind of how I live my life. But when I watched the movie, The Hurricane, Denzel's my favorite actor, like a lot of people. He played that role so good. And he was a tough guy, a boxer, heavyweight champion of the world. But when he broke and he asked for help and he said he couldn't do the time, Denzel gave me the permission to be vulnerable for the first time in my life. And I was damn near 40 years old. So when I seen that character, the heavyweight champion, Reuben Hurricane of Broken, he said, I can't do the time. I need help. That's when Tiki Davis, the Tiki Factor, decided I can't do this alone. I need a village. I need help. So I started reaching out and asking for help to get this thing done, and we got it done. I for, I love that movie. I, and I and it's like it's one of those movies yeah. that I can watch, and yeah. I'm always going to cry yeah, at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I've seen this movie 82 times. Why do I still yeah, get it, teared up when he hugs him at the yes, end? It's so powerful because <laughs> uh, you remember that scene. And like, so I know that's my mm -hmm. favorite movie. It's like, they've been appealing and they have all the evidence right there. And uh, they've been to court eight or nine times on the same case. And he says, the judge is not gonna hear, it's gonna throw all this stuff, all we've been working for all these years, uh, Ruben. And he says, you, you know, he says, we can do it another time. And then he said, it ain't no tomorrow. It's no tomorrow, mm -hmm. it's now. <laughs> and that's how I live my life. And when Denzel got up and spoke to that judge so passionately, like, you know, this is my life. I've done everything you need me to do. You know, I felt that right. and I've had that <laughs> moment in my real life that I experienced. And so I always kept that. And mm -hmm. I, right. And I also wanted to just kind of sidebar about what you said before <clears throat> about surviving yeah. and and I think that a lot of times when we have these painful experiences in life, mm -hmm. you're so focused on surviving mm -hmm. what's going on right now. You don't even think of it as an inspiring story. You don't think of how this is going to affect anyone else. Like you, you don't even give a crap about it. You're so focused on, I need to survive whatever this is, whether it be a physical trauma, emotional trauma, whatever. Right. You're so focused on just surviving. You're not even thinking about how this is going to be an inspirational story at the end. So I love that you brought that point up about, yeah. you know, 
surviving and life after survivorship and how that's the part that people want to hear about. You know, they don't care because when I, even when I talk about being a cancer survivor, I always say my story of survivorship is no greater than anyone else's story. Like we're all life survivors. Mm -hmm. Everyone has been through something. Mine was overcoming cancer. Yours was all, you know, the things that you had. So I, I love that you all gave that, that uh, perspective uh, of that as well. Right. And so Last, what I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you about is because anytime we tell stories about how things inspired us, how we all became successful, whatever it is that, that, that is our, our reason why we're, like you said, people want to hear our story mm -hmm. now because we're, we survive, we're successful, we're doing big things. So for anyone that's listening, that's like, wow, you know, I feel like I have a story to tell, or I feel like something happened to me. Maybe I should be a motivational speaker. Right. Can you give us some insight? Because again, you, you did that, that transition from the survivorship, mm -hmm. the story, the overcoming everything to now being on this platform of telling that story. And so you can't just all of a sudden start telling a story and become a motivational speaker. So for anyone that's listening, that's curious about that transition, can you give us some insight in how you twisted that to become not just motivational and living, but actually using that and making that into your career? Yeah. So real is real. So you can't really fake success. It's not, you know, you'll never see me post a picture of a car or sitting by a house with a water, waterfall or anything. They're trying to sell you something. I'm not trying to sell you nothing. I don't even take on clients as coaching until I felt like I knew enough that I can give you value. No one can put you on stage. The only person that can put you on stage, look in the mirror is you. People can make a referral, but that company, that corporation, whoever you're talking to got to see the value in you. So when I got into the business, I was really, really rough and I'm still growing and learning in the business, but I had to make myself valuable. I had to come in and solve a problem. I thought I could go in and share my story, but you got to come on. Hey, man, I'm going to attack the mental health. I'm going to attack the overcoming obstacles, but I'm going to give you a system, which is the Tiki Factor principle, how you can really overcome your problems. And then with your resume of having a book deal, you're working with Viola Davis, that gives you borrowed credibility. That's called relationship capital. So when you work with people that have a credible name that's lending their name to you, that just doesn't happen. It's some luck in it. It's some God in it. But it's a lot of perseverance and work in it. So when you get people that want to collab with you and share their platform with you, you got to take those relationships seriously. But that doesn't happen if I don't invest in myself, taking that job for $17, I mean, $7 an hour washing cars, to going to college to educate myself, to taking my first engineering job for $13 an hour, learning the engineering business, did that for two or three years. Then I end up going to work for the number one independent oil man in the world, Clay Williams Jr. And I took that $13 an hour over a seven, eight year period to where I was making a million dollars a year as a young black kid living in this place for football and oil. I thought I was going to make my million dollars playing football for the Cowboys, but I ended up making my first million dollars working in oil and gas business. So I wasn't afraid to switch helmets. So I took off the football helmet, 
and I put on a hard hat in oil and gas, and that's where I had my ultimate success. So my heart was wanting to be a pro athlete, but my mind got me to where I needed to be. So I had to shift my mindset. I didn't even know I was doing it at the time, but I had a daughter. I had a responsibility. I had to make the right decision, not for what was in my heart for the game of football, but I had to do what was right with the mind. And so I had my ultimate success to live life on my own terms, to have the platform to go around and share my story because everybody wants to hear a winner. I'm not going to listen to a motivational speaker that's still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I'm not trying to win. Not, not in what I tried to do. And so that's what it is. If you're not winning, I don't think you can motivate. Really, I don't really think you can. And so that's what I did is practice your craft, get many reps, practice as much as you can to develop a product that can that can enhance somebody else's life, uh, make their life better and study your craft and get a coach. You know, OK, so if anybody's listening, they want to be a motivational speaker slash storyteller. He gave you the insight on it. And so the last question I have for you is. I know a lot of times people, we get to this point and, and we try not to use the word regret. Mm -hmm. So people will say, well, I don't look at things as a loss. I look at it as, as a learning lesson, or I don't regret anything, whatever, you know, so I don't know what term you use, but if, is there anything along this journey that now you reflect back on that you wish that you would have done differently? I just have one regret that I really, that bothers me. So if you have a loved one that you say, oh, I'm gonna go see him next week, or I'm gonna go see him tomorrow, or you have an opportunity to go see him, but you put them off for something else or you lied to him. So the one regret I got in life is I never visited my mother in prison because I felt like we had time. My mom died when she was 44 years old. I'm 44 years old right now, and I feel like I'm in the prime of my life. So my mom used to always say, son, come visit me. And I would lie to her and say, well, my car won't make it. I'm driving a BMW because the guy that sent me to college gave me one. And I would say, no, I don't know where Lockhart, Texas is, because we didn't have GPS back then. We were running on the road map. And I was afraid to drive eight or nine hours to go see my mother in prison, where she died in prison. So we never had a chance to have that time. So I always felt like as a young boy, mom's going to get out and we're going to have this time together. So the regret I have, I didn't visit my mom in prison. So I never got to see okay. her in person since I was 17 years old. So it's like I only had a mom for like 17 years, even though she died when I was 24. But that's the last time I physically shared breath or space with her. So that's the regret. Thank you for giving us that vulnerable moment. We appreciate that insight because, you know, I think a lot of times we get so, so consumed on telling the good stuff. Mm -hmm. We, we don't really talk about the bad stuff mm -hmm. or um, kind of forget about those regrets or mm -hmm. push those to the side. So thank you for telling us about that. Okay. So how can people follow you, support you, any projects that you're working on, drop all your social media, everything you're working on. All right. So you can find me on Facebook, Tiki Davis, uh, Instagram, the Tiki factor, uh, Instagram, Tiki number five, Tiki Davis, number five. I don't use, uh, I mean, Twitter, 
Tiki Davis number five. Don't use that very much, but you can find me there and you can follow my YouTube page. We just started that. It's the Tiki Factor. And that's where you can find most of our stuff and be looking out fall 24 for my memoir. It's going to be coming out with Hopper Collins and uh, slash Viola Davis. It's going to be worldwide. So please go out and support that book. And we're proud about that work. And we'll be on a book tour at that time. So we'll have a drip campaign and you'll hear more about that in the future. But hey, if you ever need a speaker that can speak to oil and gas professionals, corporations, high schools, nonprofits, you know, I'm not one dimensional. I got different layers. I'm an expert in all those things because I really did it. And hey, and most importantly, you want to book me, just go to tikidavis.com. And that's pretty much it. Right. Got it. Uh, and football football teams, because yes, yes, he also yes. was, I know you did a lot of stuff with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah. Like, yeah, don't just, not just yeah, well so, and gas, baby. We do, we, we yeah. we're a wide. Yeah, we, we, we've done a little bit of everything. We spoke to the uh, Steelers last training camp. We're right now uh, talking to the, the Saints, the 49ers, and the Redskins. So just looking at dates for them to bring us in. We're going to be down at Grambling University August the 4th with Hugh Jackson speaking to his boys. So we're, we're busy. And then actually Hollywood being uh, Houston, Texas, uh, August 29th speaking at Chevron to all their engineers. So God's good. We've been blessed. And the Tiki Factor's on the move. So if you need a speaker, hey, reach me at tikidavis.com and book Tiki. All right. I love it. And don't worry for anyone that's not watching this video and you're just driving or on the treadmill, you're just listening to the audio, check the podcast notes. Everything will be in there with clickable links as well. Cause I know some people don't like to type in words, so don't worry. Cause I have clickable links in the podcast notes. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much Tiki for sharing your story with us. Very, very inspiring. And not just with the, not with just the, the childhood and the struggles that you came, but just of how you are persevering right now and soaring and how you're doing all of these things and finding your purpose and living your passion. Right. To me, that's more inspiring than any, any type of, of triumph is living the purpose that you were destined to be. And right. so I love that. I love that. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Let me get you that smile. <laughs>